Our Father, we thank you for the extraordinary power of your word. We thank you that your word in the hands of your spirit is a mighty, powerful, and moving thing that is able to lift up the downhearted, that is able to humble the proud, that is able to lead people from death to life in Jesus, that is able to inspire us to spur us on, that is able to turn us from people who look to our own interests, to love to look to the interests of others. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for what your word teaches us about the Lord Jesus. And there are some wonderful things here today for us to learn about him. Make it fresh, living, powerful, helpful, and applied to our lives, we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now we come now to Mark chapter 11. And all that is described in chapters 11 to 16 which is um, more than a third of Mark's gospel, all that's described in 11 to 16 takes place in one single week. It is the Passover week. Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem along with hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims. It's hard to know for sure how many there would have been, but the city it doubled its population. Think of Edinburgh, if you live here, when the festival is on normally in the summer. The population of the city really, really swells, so much so that you notice it everywhere. Passover was the major event in the Jewish religious calendar. It remembered how God had rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt the exodus out of Egypt. And the central event in the exodus, the event that persuaded Pharaoh to let God's people go was the terrible night. The angel of death moved through the land of Egypt, taking the firstborn. God's people were protected then by the blood of a sacrificed lamb smeared on the doorposts of their homes. And that blood sacrifice, that shed blood, meant that the angel of judgment and death passed over them. The Passover celebration recalled these events, the great deliverance from Egypt and the journey to the promised land. It looked back to remember that glorious rescue, but it also, the Passover feast and celebration, anticipated the great day that would come when God's Messiah King would come to Jerusalem and bring about a far greater deliverance, the long-promised Messiah, the long-anticipated Messiah. Now, the city is crowded with Jewish pilgrims, if you have a Bible, if you just flick through it, in chapter 11 through to the end of chapter 
13. That's the early part of the Passover week. And then from chapter 14, verse 1 through to 1541, that's a very narrow period of time from Thursday evening through to Friday evening. Jesus was crucified on the Friday morning. And then 1542 to 168, Friday through Sunday of Passover week. The material we are on in Mark now is the most important material in the Gospels. It all points to this. And the most important days in the whole of human history. Now, the themes of these sections, chapter 11 through chapter 13 is about, as Davi mentioned, Jesus' authority in judgment and salvation. Then the focus, 14 to 15, on Jesus' death, and then finally on his resurrection. Now, today we are in 11, 1 to 25. Let me explain the structure and what we're going to do. Really, there are two things uh, that are obvious for us to say from these verses. And one more that is so obvious that we might miss it. Let me explain. So the two things that are very clear and avert to us, first of all, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Jesus, God's Messiah King, comes to Jerusalem. Kind of famous passage. And yet, do we truly understand what it's saying? So that's uh, 1 to 11 of chapter 11. Jesus, God's Messiah King, comes to Jerusalem. And then 11, 12 to 25, let me give you a title for these verses, Jesus' Judgment on Corrupt Judaism. So Jesus, God's Messiah King, comes to Jerusalem. That's uh, point one, 11, 1 to 11. And point two, Jesus' judgment on corrupt Judaism. Now, they're the two obvious things here. But there's one more such important thing that's being illustrated before our eyes that could be masked by the, the judgment theme that's going on. And that is something extraordinary and astonishing and will be of great encouragement to our hearts today if I can explain it in a way that's not completely confusing. Is that Jesus confirms in this passage the end of the temple as a building. Now, he does not confirm the end of the temple. That's a big misunderstanding. Temple will never end. But he confirms that God's dwelling place with humanity, which is what the temple is, will no longer be in a building or a bit of a building. And quite powerfully, this is illustrated today as I preach to an empty building. But I do not preach in a vacuum, supernaturally. Now, let's pick up the first two points and then we'll get on to 
this really important theme of the temple. So Jesus, God's Messiah King, comes to Jerusalem. That's 11, 1 to 11, a famous passage. Um, the reference to the Mount of Olives, um, Ezekiel, um, at the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586 BC, Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem, the temple, and settling on the Mount of Olives. That's why Mark, I think, includes that reference. Verses 1 to 6 focus on the preparation for Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. Mark's point is that these events are not random. They are the outworking of Jesus' precise foreknowledge and sovereignty over the events. Nothing that happens is random. Nothing that happens is out with the sovereign control of God. Details in the story carry messianic connotations. They allude to the fact that the Messiah has come. The cult, I guess most powerfully, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Let me read that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here he is. The spreading of cloaks and palm branches, suggestive of the ceremonial welcoming of a king. Now, in Mark's gospel, these references are subtle. It's kind of very nearly a coronation, but not quite. Hosanna means, it's a transliterated Hebrew word, it means literally, save I pray. Now, the crowd's acclamations in verses 9 and 10 are probably less specific and illustrate less understanding than we assume they do. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118. That's not a messianic psalm, rather a psalm that points to pilgrims entering the temple. Are the crowd simply saying that here's Jesus, this famous teacher? Yes, but just another pilgrim coming to the Passover celebration. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's not from Psalm 118. The reference to the coming kingdom is certainly uh, true, but the reference to our father David. Why does Mark include here the reference to our father David and not son of David? Now, my splitting hairs, I don't think so. I think there's a, there's a sense that Mark is trying to give us here that the crowd do not fully understand. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Maybe Jesus preached about the kingdom of God, yes, but not the coming kingdom of our father David. Likely, Mark, I think he is certainly, is signaling confusion on the part of the crowd. The summary effect of the quotation in verses 9 to 10 is thus not perhaps as overtly messianic or revealing true understanding as we might first think. And then this anticlimax in verse 11 in Mark. The crowds have gone. Jesus goes to the temple and makes a commanding survey, and he withdraws to Bethany with the twelve.
Now, I think I'm persuaded that Mark's account is noteworthy for perhaps what does not happen. The whole scene comes to nothing. The crowd disperses as mysteriously as it assembled. It reminds me of this bit of the parable of the sower. Seed that fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and cry Hosanna and wave their branches and make a noise. But there are no roots. Mark, I think, is warning us against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is never confessed primarily in pomp and circumstance. He is never confessed primarily in a procession. He is confessed at a cross. A sinful heart can be very interested in Jesus. A sinful heart can be very, very religious, but far from him. It's worth remembering, I think, that we should read this passage in light of Mark's model disciples. Who have we just left last Sunday morning? or the previous passage in Mark's narrative, the blind beggar. What does he see? Son of David, have mercy on me. And at the end of this first section, 11 to 13, this first section of the Passover week, the next section begins with chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. An unnamed woman who breaks a jar of ointment over Jesus' head out of loving devotion to him. And it's striking that this clamoring noise at the beginning of chapter 11, beyond that, the two bookends on the left and right, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus' assessment of the woman, she did what she could. She anointed my body for death. Now, Jesus enters Jerusalem as God's Messiah King, but do not be fooled. And let me ask us to consider what extent and how are our hearts interested in the Lord Jesus? Can we really, and this is the safe place to be, are we really in our hearts saying, like Bartimaeus, Jesus, have mercy on me? Now, let's move on to uh, Jesus' judgment on corrupt Judaism, and quickly on this. Um, Mark's structure in chapter um, 11, verses 12 to 25, 
is uh, an illustration of what people call his sandwich technique. Um, the beginning and end of the passage, Jesus curses a fruitless fig tree, and in the middle, um, he uh, cleanses the temple. These are the headings that you will see in your Bible. Let's consider the um, uh, sections on either side first, the cursing of the fruit tree, and then consider the bit in the middle that matters most, the cleansing of the temple. Now, the fig tree, you'll see that 11, 12 to 14, and 20 to 21. In the Old Testament, the fig tree is often used as a metaphor for Israel, the Jewish people. The metaphor is used positively and negatively for their fruitfulness and unfruitfulness. Consider first verses 12 to 14. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree in leaf. And since the fruit uh, figs began to grow at the same time as the leaves, the expectation is that this fig tree will have uh, some fruit, even though it is not the season for figs. Now, there's a lot of concern people raise about that phrase, even though it is not the season for figs. This is Easter time, the season for figs is the autumn. Um, all that that's saying is that this is not the, the main season, but if there are leaves in a fig tree, there are uh, figs, um, small figs, baby figs, if you like, that people did eat if they were uh, hungry. That's all that that uh, means, kind of eyewitness testimony uh, uh, comment. Now, on inspection, uh, even though there are leaves, which would indicate that there should be fruit, there is no fruit. And as a consequence, Jesus curses the fig tree so no one will eat of it um, again. And following uh, the episode in the temple, the narrative returns to the fig tree which has withered. So let me read verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw that the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is uh, withered. And the cursing and uh, withering of the fig tree is a metaphor for God's judgment on the dead, fruitless Jewish religion that opposed him. Now that's what the fig tree is doing. Let's turn to 15 to 19. Jesus cleanses the temple. He goes to the temple courts where instead of true and sincere worship of God, it is a marketplace for traders and money changers. His actions are powerful and authoritative, drives out the traders and money changers, overturns their stalls and bars those selling merchandise. He explains his action by quoting from two Old Testament texts. Firstly, Isaiah 56 and 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer from the nations. And then Jeremiah 7, 11. And uh, what Jesus is doing is he is comparing the true purpose of the temple, which is a place of worship, a place that is a light to the nations. And all this activity where he, he, he stops all this uh, sort of charade is in the Gentile court, of the temple. Now, what do we uh, conclude then of this passage? And I do want to get on to the temple stuff. Um, verses uh, 12 to 25. What Jesus is doing is he is signaling that he has come in authority to judge the corrupt Judaism of his day. Now, the focus, uh, and Roger will pick up on this next Sunday is on the leaders of Israel, and the mandate that God gave to Israel and to the Jews will be given now to the living church of 
Christ. Now, I'm going to leave it there, that specific judgment on corrupt uh, Judaism. And what I want to do in the time we have left is something that I have thoroughly benefited from myself over this past week. And uh, looking at what's going on here in terms of its significance in history that Jesus confirms the end of the temple as a building. And that's a wonderful thing. So there's a motif running through this, his judgment on the temple. Really what that means is his judgment on corrupt Judaism. Jesus is not... The temple is always there in his purposes. Now, the dominant node in this section is judgment. Perhaps Roger will pick up on that next week. The hostility against Jesus is mounting in these chapters. The Jewish religious leaders are determined to have him killed. In fact, all that he does here is just going to lead to his death. It's so provocative. And, of course, he does die on the cross, and the cross is bleak and sober, but glorious. Yes, it is glorious. And there are wonderful truths in these chapters. I long thought that chapters 11, 12, 13 were tough chapters about the authority of Jesus. They're wonderfully tough. And they teach us about the glories of the gospel. There is no more need for a physical temple. And then the chapters on the cross are bleak and sober and dark full of wrath but full of glory and promise and salvation and forgiveness out of forsakenness. And here, Jesus confirms the end of the temple as a building, and that is a wonderful thing. And in the next 10 minutes, all your misconceptions like mine and misunderstandings and confusions will be wonderfully cleared up about the temple. Now, how do we know that Mark wants us to, to pick up and draw out this theme of uh, the end of the temple as a building? Well, verses 22 to 25, if you just read them, are about something way better than the temple. Jesus answered them at the end of this episode of faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but leaves that he uh, says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That's not a literal promise. It's a metaphorical, figurative, comparative promise against what it's been like up to now. Verse 25, though. Just compare verse 25 to if you'd had to go to the temple or had to go through some sort of sacrificial cleansing or sacrificial system all your life and now verse 25 whenever you stand praying forgive we're back in bite size whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may forgive you all you've got to do is ask him that's it Is it really saying that you can talk to God without a priest, without a sacrifice, without a curtain? Now, the answer to that is yes. Let me sketch out in the time we have left, and I'm going to try and do this in 10 minutes. I don't want to go above 35 minutes. I'm working hard on sermon length. 
Now, as soon as we, and I tried this out on the guys in church this morning, as soon as we hear the word temple, we think building, 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 building. At least I do anyway. Um, one of the people in here didn't, and he got all the answers right, but most of us think building. Let me ask you, rather, to think about God's temple, not as a building, but in this way. The temple is, here's a definition of the temple. The temple is where God dwells with his people. The temple is where God dwells with his people. Therefore, creation is God's temple. Yep. All of creation, this is back in Genesis 1 and 2, is God's temple. That's what Genesis 1 is about. Genesis 1 is about a temple. The whole of Genesis 1 shows that God creates an ordered world, symbolized in the first six days of creation. And on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation, every bit of it, as he takes up his rest and his rule. Creation is God's temple in that that's where God dwells with his people. Genesis 2 is another description of creation, the beginning of the history of humanity. That description focuses in the land, and in the center of the land, there is a region called Eden. That name means delight. And in the middle of Eden, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. That garden is the temple of God. It is the place where God dwells with his people. Adam and Eve, the first humans, were the first priests or kings who ruled under God over the world. That's why Jesus, so much theological richness in this, is why Jesus is the second Adam. But of course, instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they are exiled into, uh, exiled from the garden temple, put out uh, of the east gate of the garden of Eden. And you remember in uh, biblical imagery what bars the entrance to God's presence after the fall are two cherubims and a flaming sword that bars our access that bars our access, the kind of access that Mark is referring to here that prays directly to God, that bars our access to the presence of God. But in the biblical story, God is not giving up on humanity. He chooses one family out of the nations and eventually comes to take up residence in their midst, first in the mobile temple structure called the tabernacle. That's the first uh, the first evidence of the temple being a building. It's not a building, it's a tent. It then becomes a building. It's a portable structure that becomes a fixed structure. And the tabernacle was designed as a kind of micro-Eden. And the priests who worked there were symbolic representatives of Adam and Eve. And you can see the logic. In the tabernacle, it's got a holy of holies where God dwells, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Only once a year, the priest could, on behalf of the people, retrace the depths of humanity back into the Garden of Eden. That's what's being symbolized. And how did the priest get into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement? Through sacrifices, blood. But only one man, once a year, could symbolically, as it were, get past the cherubim and the flaming sword 
back into the temple of God. Now, the portable structure that is the tabernacle symbolized uh, God's presence with his people when they were on the move. Once they get into the promised land, the tabernacle is the central point where God meets with his people. And eventually we get through the history of God's people to the remarkable chapters in 2 Samuel 6 and 7, which are hugely formative for the rest of the whole biblical understanding of the temple. David has been at this stage king for seven years, but only over the southern two tribes. And then he becomes king over all 12 tribes, and he takes Jerusalem, and he makes it his capital. And uh, the Davidic dynasty is promised by God in 2 Samuel 7. The Ark of the Covenant is brought in, and uh, you've got all these big themes coming together. Jerusalem, the dynasty of David, and the tabernacle is there in Jerusalem, in the city of God. And then, not in David's lifetime, but in Solomon, his sons, the temple is built. The physical building, Solomon's temple, that stood in Jerusalem for 400 years. It was the crown jewel of Jerusalem and the center of worship uh, from the Lord. Here's a little fact for you. The city of Jerusalem is located in three major valleys, the Hinnon, the Central, and the Kidron. The mountain range between the Central and the Kidron valleys is called Mount Moriah. And the peak of Mount Moriah is a long, flat rock. And it's on that rock that Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. David bought that area outside Jerusalem and built his temple, or Solomon built his temple, on that rock. David and then Solomon, in terms of the physical building, moved the ark into the temple. And the temple of Solomon was modeled on the tabernacle of Moses, the Garden of Eden, the prototype for the tabernacle, and thus later temples. According to Jewish tradition, Eden was on a hill. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were at the center of the garden. Adam and Eve transgressed, partook of the forbidden fruit. They were put out towards the east. Cherubim and a flaming sword were placed at the east entrance to prevent them from partaking in the tree. And in order to come back into the presence of God, Israel had to symbolically retrace the steps of Adam and Eve, passing the cherubim, re-entering the garden in a westward direction, and uh, maybe that's too much detail. What I'm trying to get you to see, though, is that one man, once a year, in this physical building, having performed sacrifices for his own sins and performed sacrifices on the brazen altar of sacrifice in the middle of the temple, would walk into the Holy of Holies past these hanging curtains. And on these hanging curtains, two cherubim and a flaming sword for one day in the year only one man was able to enter into the presence of the Lord. Up until this point, the dwelling place of God in humanity is not in a physical building. It is in a little room in that physical building. 
that we are barred from accessing. And of course, the temple was destroyed physically during the exile. I'd love to take you to Ezekiel and the glorious vision of Ezekiel that God has not left his people. God's presence is not confined to a building. Ezekiel is languishing in a prison camp on the banks of the Kibar Canal in Babylon. God is there. But after the exile, the people did go back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel. It's called the Second Temple. The Second Temple period. A few hundred years later, Antiochus, a, a, a pagan ruler and warrior, desecrated the temple. And then the Third Temple, the Third Physical Temple, was built at 20 BC under Herod, the Aegean king. And he rebuilt the temple and Jesus is standing in it here. Now, that's a history of the temple. And all of that is crucial for understanding the story of Jesus. Think of John's gospel. How does John's gospel begin? The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. The word became flesh, and he himself was the tabernacle or the temple of God. He is the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice. His flesh is the veil. And because he provides the once and for all sacrifice, the whole edifice falls down. It's not just that the curtain is ripped, but the walls fall down. And all that's left standing is Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, the temple of God. And something wonderful that will be unpacked as we walk through these chapters and beyond. Jesus is the temple of God. And by extension, we are the temple of God because Jesus lives in us. Or let me put it in a different way. The temple of God, where God dwells with his people, is in Jesus. And Jesus lives in you, and therefore God dwells in you. You are the temple of God. And when a group of Christians come together, in membership, what we call a living church, uh, Peter says, you are living stones built up as a temple for God's Spirit to dwell, and you can gather physically as best, and you can sing, and you can pray, and you can confess sin, and you can look back to a cross, and of course it all ends in the new creation, what are the last two books of the last two chapters of the Bible saying? The vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Let me read to you from Revelation 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God's creation was his temple. God's new creation is his temple. In between, it got so bad that it was just in a room in a building. And then when Jesus came, wonderfully, it became him as God's temple and him in us by his spirit. And the living church is all scattered across the world, communities of faith where God dwells 
with his people. Come into a church family, and that's why we do need to meet together. You will encounter God's dwelling place with humanity. It's extraordinary. And that's what's happening here. In the middle of all these judgment motifs, there is this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. And in God's providence, I get to preach a cluttered sermon, and I apologize for that. It's been a difficult week. A cluttered sermon on what the true temple is when there is no one in this building. Isn't that poignant? It's why we don't shut the church down. Because you are the temple. In all your homes. God knew that, helpfully, you preach a sermon on what the true temple is, standing in a building with no one in it, because this is just a building. It's helpful and useful, but God doesn't dwell in here. God does not dwell in here unless you are here. Some of us are here. But God is not here unless you are here. Now, what's the flip side of that coin? That God is where you are, in your homes, with all the noise and clutter and distractions and what's for lunch and all that stuff. God is with you where you are. That's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that in some of the clutter of this morning, we would have understood in some way the extraordinary, extraordinary thing that Jesus has done. To take away this narrow, narrow dimension of God's presence with his people in a building to God's presence with his people in his Son and in the spirit of the living Christ in all of us and together as we gather in communities of faith. Help us understand how wonderful it is to be a Christian believer. For Jesus' sake, amen.